0: Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of The Goods, film podcast. This is Dan and I have Brian with me. You out there, Brian? Hey Dan, how's it going? We're here for episode number 108. 108, baby. Exciting. So Brian... We are just a couple days away from Christmas. Uh, How are you feeling? Are you feeling festive? Are you feeling wintry?
1: Yeah, pretty good. I just got all my decorations up, finally. Took me a while to get started, but the tree is up with all the decorations, all the ornaments. I have quite a few. And now it's all intact and in place, and we're ready.
0: Do you have, like, a signature or
1: favorite winter decoration? Oh man, there's so many at this point. It's been gauntly I have like a full suit of armor in place and a six foot tall nutcracker. Oh man. So it's hard to pick. Uh, I have quite a few favorite ornaments and I have the goods logo on an ornament that you gave me. That's right,
0: yeah. Oh wait, I thought that one I got a hand lettered, not the... Well, yeah, it's like, it's calligraphy, but... That's right, yeah, yeah my three-year-old has taken a liking to nutcrackers. So my wife decided, Hey, you know what? We have two boxes of ornaments. One is labeled unbreakable and one is labeled breakable. Let's be brave this year. Let's pull out some of our breakable ones. we got a five-year-old and a three-year-old, maybe a bit silly, better age than two and four, but you know, still definitely on the brave side. So some of our breakable ones are mini nutcracker ornaments and, my three-year-old has latched onto them. So she finds them on the tree, takes them off and walks around with them. And there have just been nutcracker like limbs and weapons and stuff that I've just found around the house. She keeps dropping them and like bumping them into stuff and breaking them. I mean, I don't really care that much. It's just kind of funny to see like a, a jaw separated from the rest of a nutcracker lying on the floor. Oh no, how are you going to crack your nut? That's <laughs> see. I don't think a three-inch tall... Uh, Nutcracker ornament is going to be doing much nutcracking. That's
1: what happens when you remove the function from the form, Dan. Really says something about civilization
0: today. Maybe, yeah. Then again, you have a giant suit of armor <laughs> that nobody's using in your house. So,
1: But it can be used, Dan. I suppose, yeah. Unlike your three-inch nutcracker.
0: <laughs> Very tiny uh, little peanut or something. So, Brian, I asked you to watch a film for our film podcast And that film is the 2019 Netflix original film, Let It Snow. Now, Let It Snow was directed by Luke Snellen, who I've never heard of. He's directed a couple of other YA-type movies, or at least quirky comedy drama movies. But the main reason that this movie is notable to me is that it is an adaptation of a book that I have read several times, and that is the 2008 book, Let It Snow, Three Holiday Romances, which is what they call a fix-up novel, which is when you basically assemble a few short stories or novellas into a single novel. So yes, this is yet another young adult adaptation. We had a a month dedicated to that earlier this year. And it is yet another John Green adaptation. So John Green wrote one of the three stories, one of the three novellas within Let It Snow, Three Holiday Romances, the, the 2008 book. So I think this is the only the second John Green book that we've covered, but he's come up in many of our discussions, and he was a central focus of that episode where we watched Paper Towns, which actually I think preceded our... Young Adult Adaptation Month, although I can't remember for sure.
1: Because which one did he write? You said Paper
0: Towns? Yeah, Paper Towns. Yeah. Okay. So the the three authors who contributed novellas to this were uh, Maureen Johnson, who is a terrific young adult writer. Um, she wrote this series called Truly Devious a couple years ago that I binge read, and it was really good. It was like a little pseudo-noir teen story that was quite good. And then John Green, who, of course, I've read everything he's written. And then the third one is Lauren Miracle, who was a pretty big YA author around 2008. She wrote a bunch of books that were banned because of some sexual content and also because she wrote them in, like, texting and internet lingo But it was being put in school libraries and dumbass parents were like, I don't want my kids reading this as literature. They should be learning how to write real English in school. So some of her books got banned. Like she has one called TTYL and TTFN and late R gate R, and just (laughs) they don't even sound that good. But it's also especially dumb to ban them. Mm -hmm. But anyways, um, so I take it you'd never read this before. No, this was new to me, the movie and the
1: book. I didn't dive too deep into the the differences, but it looks like you're going to bring us some context.
0: That's right. Yeah. So I reread um, two thirds of the book this week. I didn't get around to the third one, which was the Lauren Miracle one, but I reread the Maureen Johnson one and the, the John Green one, and I'll be talking a little bit about those.
1: It did seem like some ground that we've covered before.
0: Yeah. Would you say that uh, in that regard, that resembles the types of movies that I've liked in the past, Brian? <laughs> These types of stories? Yeah, a little bit. I think we're going <laughs> to cycle back to that. All right. So, uh, the reason that I picked this one specifically obviously, it's winter themed. It's set on Christmas Eve. So, I think appropriate for the season. But also, the John Green story within the book that is entitled A Cheer Tastic Christmas Miracle is probably my number one all-time comfort reading book. So I read it when I'm lying sick in bed and want something to read. I used to read it about once a year. I mean, you can breeze through it in like an hour. And it's just, I really liked it. It's, it's really funny. It's pretty light, of course. It's got lots of great banter and quipping in it. And it, it does have a best friend romance told from the boy's perspective which, as we have covered in the past, is uh, my guilty pleasure when it comes to to romance stories. In fact, the the book version of the romance pretty much exactly fits the type of story we talked about in the Some Kind of Wonderful episode way back in the day. And we'll talk about how the movie does that a little bit differently here, but by, by which I mean the girl is pining after the boy in the book and not vice versa.
1: But they changed it
0: up here in the film. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that this this novella by John Green has some really thoughtful writing on the the risks and benefits of choosing to basically exit a comfortable stasis to aim for something more and take some risks, whether it's like a, a romance. And obviously some of it is in the context of like taking the next step with a good friend romantically or just an adventure or like really anything where you're kind of in a comfortable state and you wonder if you should go for the next great thing. And here's just a couple of quotes from that book. I always had the idea that you should never give up a happy middle in the hopes of a happy ending, because there is no such thing as a happy ending. And sometimes that happy middle looks so great that you can convince yourself that it's not the middle, but will last forever. And then he goes on a bit later. What could I lose by continuing, that had not already been lost, and this theme of like a happy middle, I thought was like a really poignant way of describing that comfortable state that one could be in. And the last line of the the book is, "I put the latte down on the table, awash in the happy middle of my greatest adventure." So I really like the writing. Of this I mean, John Green's always been a good writer and very funny, so I enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I. I guess the moral is like that song that used to be on the radio all the time. "The I hope you dance. I hope you dance. You know, are you familiar? Oh, yeah, yeah. My uh,
0: teachers would play that for us at the end of the year sometimes in elementary and middle school. Like, keep dreaming, kids. Yeah, seize the opportunity when it's there. Right. But Brian, on that note, and what I tasked you with last week is to come up with, what are some of the comfort media for us? So I challenged you to come up with these things in, in different forms of media, like things that you revisit when you want a, a spirit boost, when you want to feel a little bit better, something easy and not too challenging, something that you've revisited a bunch of times. So I, I challenged you to come up with a movie, a TV show or episode, a song or album, and a book or a piece of writing. So were you able to come up with with these things, Brian?
1: Okay, Dan. So you gave me this assignment, things that you turn to for comfort, and some are a little deeper, some are a little more surface level. When it comes to movies, I'm going to select the one that ended my top 100 that we just did recently at uh, number one, UHF. About Weird Al Yankovic playing a guy who makes weird TV shows and becomes famous and successful thereby. I love the scene when they carry, there's like a a crowd that carries Michael Richards around on their shoulders triumphantly because he was kidnapped for a while by the rival television station but then at last he's freed and they they carry him back to his rightful place and he finishes out the telethon and it plays this like triumphant fanfare as they're carrying him into the station and that makes
0: my spirit sore
1: what about you dan when it comes to movies
0: nice good pick yeah so for for a movie one of my criteria is i ideally want to be able to start it at any point and stop it at any point and still have gotten something out of it. So that disqualifies, for example, It's a Wonderful Life, which, you know, always makes me feel inspired, but you have to watch it from start to finish to get that effect. So it's mostly kind of breezy comedies. I mean, um, Dazed and Confused, which was number two on my list when we did our top 100 movies, uh, definitely up there. Hercules, just immensely watchable, always makes me smile. Snow Day and Teen Beach movie we have been movies we've talked about in the kid movies realm. But the one I'm going to go with is My Cousin Vinny. So many scenes are just so perfect. It does take a little long to get going, at least in my opinion. But man, from basically the start of the second act onward, every single scene is terrific. It makes me laugh so hard and smile and especially the courtroom scenes with Joe Pesci bantering with these witnesses. And nobody's like a a jerk in it. it is one thing I like. It's a clash of cultures, but there's not really a villain. And so I don't have to hate anyone or feel bad about anyone. It's just just fun, despite being about a murder trial. So that's my movie. The next thing I I had, Brian, was a TV show or a TV episode.
1: Okay, so for this one, I am going with comfort in the sense of a stable presence just something that's always there and i have picked jeopardy which i tune into basically every day if i'm out of town i've got the reruns recorded on my dvr but always gotta check in with that you know it's a fun game to play keep your mind sharp and yeah
0: i'm a big follower great pick what are you thinking for me, I'm going with a show that I adore. I've watched about five times. I always go to bat for whenever I can. And I can just put on any episode and know that I will laugh my ass off and also like the characters. And that is Party Down. 20 episodes. I like them all. Always makes me smile and laugh. So that's my pick for show or, or episode. What about a song? or an album any picks there
1: yeah so music for me is the deep dive as soon as you said like what do you go to for comfort i have like multiple songs in fact maybe like a whole playlist that's just like if i'm feeling down this is what i put on and there it's like my my sad song playlist and to share a little bit of that um one is downtown by petula clark
0: I don't know that one. Are you
1: familiar with that one? Oh, man. You got to play that one. It's like, when you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. Oh, I have heard that. Yeah, yeah. Or as Groundskeeper Willie sings it, Dune (laughs) Tune. Good one. But another is, we've talked about it on our old blog when we did a couple articles where we were just collaborating on playlists. I think we did one for What Do You Do When It's Raining? And one I put forward was a cover of Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. That's an instrumental. And it's from this album that we had when I was really little called Moods for a Stormy Night, where the gimmick is that it's got like storm sound effects backing the music. And it's like instrumental, instrumental tunes, but with rain falling in the background. And yeah, the best track on the album is Can't Take My Eyes Off of You.
0: I, I remember you picking that one. That's a good one. I, I love Can't Take My Eyes Off You, the Frankie Valley one. I play that for my daughter sometimes. It's just a, such a rousing number. I, I do like that one. That's a great pick. And then the last
1: one I want to give lip service to is a cover of the song Not in Nottingham from the disney robin hood but it's performed by a guy on youtube named logan kendall and he does these like acoustic guitar songs some that he writes himself but a lot of covers too and it's very evocative this is like the down in the dumps song when everybody's in jail in disney's robin hood because they didn't pay their taxes
0: you you gotta send us that uh that cover i don't think i've heard that oh i will
1: but that's the song that it goes every town has its ups and downs sometimes ups outnumber the downs but not in nottingham it's got uh roger miller as the rooster Mm. alan adele robin hood's bard buddy
0: gotcha I haven't watched Robin Hood in my adult life. That's one that I have to to go see again. I, I think maybe not in 2023, but at some point I'm going to get through all of the Walt Disney animation studios that I haven't seen in my adulthood. Cool.
1: I have a couple friends who are doing the, the watch through recently. I think Teddy was one of them. There's certainly gaps in my knowledge. Robin Hood is one that I watched all the time growing up. It's probably been a while since I've seen it, but when I was doing the construction job, uh, my foreman like really liked the Disney Robin Hood growing up and he had this nice car that was a Cobra Spitfire, and he had the license plate Sir Hiss. Oh, that's awesome. Who is the snake character
0: in Disney's Robin Hood. That's really cool. All good picks, Brian. For me, I'm like you where I have like a a deep well of music that I can listen to for any mood. So it's kind of hard to narrow it down to just one or two. So I'll just throw a couple out there and then I'll pick one. But Be My Baby by the Ronettes, which is the Phil Spector produced masterpiece from the 60s. Just a perfect pop song, very cheery and well sung and great to sing along with. I don't know how much of a rabbit hole to go into on on these, but there was a short-lived band called Bandits of the Acoustic Revolution, or B-O-T-A-R, or Botar, and they only ever released one EP, and four of the five songs on the EP were just covers, or subsequently covered by the band Streetlight Manifesto. So it's essentially a spinoff of the band Streetlight Manifesto, which is a ska rock band that I really, really love. We talked about them not too long ago. The They were the one that did the end of the end of the beginning tour. Anyways, Botar, their EP, the best song on there is one that's never been covered by Streetlight. So you, if you want to listen to it, you have to listen to the, the Botar version. And it's called It's a Wonderful Life, like the movie, but it's unrelated to it. Uh, it just happens to be the chorus. And it's this really lovely, wistful, unique sounding song. And it's got some darkness to it, but it just makes my heart glow. It's a terrific one. Awesome. The soundtrack to How to Train Your Dragon is also there for me. I mean, there's a bunch of soundtracks, but that's probably the one that's at the top of the list. where just hit play on it and it improves whatever I'm doing. Last one, and this is going to be my official pick, is You Belong With Me by Taylor Swift. Real cornball pick, I know, but a great one to sing along to. And it has just always been kind of stuck in my head. A song that I have loved, and I will probably, at an April Fool's episode at some point, depending on how long this pod goes, bring the music video, because I could go deep on the music video.
1: Okay, yeah. I was going to talk about the music video, too, that it's very intriguing to me that the one that he's with that
0: isn't her is also her. Yeah, it's amazing. She's both. We're going to have to do a deep dive on that at some point, because... very compelling. Remember how we were surprised that I talked about Heavy Metal Parking Lot, the 15-minute documentary for an hour? I think we would be surprised how long I could talk about the music video for You Belong With Me, too. So we'll, we'll do that at some point. Last one, a book or a piece of writing. So I've already given mine. Mine is the Tastic Christmas Miracle by John Green from Let It Snow. But do you have any, any that come to mind for you, Brian?
1: Okay, so off the top of my head, I was thinking of bits of writing, as you said, and the one that I have come up with is a quote that I first heard from the history podcast guy, Dan Carlin, who I've name dropped a few times, Uh, but it's originally from the author James Baldwin. And he says, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the
0: people who were alive and who had ever been alive. That's awesome. James Baldwin is such a good writer. I've read two books by him. And just like on a book-for-book basis, one of the best writers I've ever read. I love James Baldwin. I'm glad you shouted him out. Yeah, but the key is that whatever you've been
1: going through, somebody else has already done it, so... That can be, you know, comforting. It can also make you feel a little insignificant, but just know that what you're going through other people have too.
0: Well, I think what's great about the experience of reading is it doesn't really make you feel small in that regard. It makes you feel connected to other people, at least when I read and find familiar emotions. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that with me. And I'm going to post this topic on the Discord so we'll see what some of our listeners have to say about what some of their comfort things, their comfort media are. And listeners, I encourage you to join us and share your own at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. It's got a link to our Discord. We'd love to see you there. But on to the topic at hand, the movie Let It Snow from 2019. So as I mentioned, the 2008 novel was ad- was adapted in 2019 by Netflix – a cast of a whole bunch of rising teen stars who had been in different things, some of them previously child actors, some of them not, and many of whom have gone on to really interesting careers just in the three years since then. And I imagine 10 years from now, we'll look back and a couple of these names will pop out at us like, wow, they were in that cheesy teen romance that was on Netflix. But this is basically the teen version of Love Actually in that it follows a bunch of different stories Across one day, I guess Love Actually isn't just one day, but the way that it kind of hops between different stories and you're kind of getting a panorama of all these different characters that are all tied together in some way. In this case, it all happens around the town of Laurel, Illinois.
1: We might have to do a Love Actually episode at some point because I'll just chime in here to say I thought this was better than Love
0: Actually. Really? Interesting. (laughs) I hadn't done a qualitative comparison on that. I'll have to think a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess. Actually, we did do a whole Love Actually podcast episode, but it was a long time ago. It was in the proto goods.
0: Yeah. Shout out to Gavin, one of our listeners, and he guessed it on our pod. I-, I can't bring up Love Actually anywhere without him talking about how it's one of his least favorite movies in the world.
1: Oh, it's not good. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But anyways, it's interesting because the book is broken into like three distinct stories that although they have some interlocking parts, each one is a standalone. But this movie goes the Cloud Atlas adaptation route where it takes standalone stories and like scene to scene, we're hopping to a new story, a different story. But yeah, I'm going to dive into the recap here, Brian. Any other preliminary thoughts before we dive in? Lead us in. Sure. So, like I mentioned, it's Christmas Eve and not just is it Christmas Eve, but a big snowstorm has hit this town of Laurel, Illinois. And our story is narrated, at least the intro and the outro, by Tinfoil Lady. In the book, it's Tinfoil Man, or I think a tinfoil guy. I can't remember, even though I just read it yesterday. That's the Netflix adaptation for you. (laughs) And here it's Joan Cusack who has been in at least one other thing we've talked about, and that is School of Rock, where she is terrific. She's a very, very funny actress, best known as Jessie from Toy Story. And here she plays the role as like a slightly crazy, but sort of wise woman, and she drives a tow truck around. And she always wraps herself in tinfoil for reasons that remain unexplained. And she gets mad if you ever bring it up. So what did you think of Tinfoil, Lady Brian?
1: Well, this was one of several parallels I saw with Snow Day that we talked about last year. So you've got the kind of weird, creepy loner character driving around in a distinctive truck. Gonculator. Yeah. So this one's not quite a gonculator, but I was thinking of that. Yeah. And for anybody unfamiliar with that past episode, a gonculator is a term my family uses to describe any... Truck, any large land vehicle that becomes super prominent in a movie to the point that it's almost a character.
0: Yeah, this one doesn't place quite as much emphasis on the truck itself as Snow Day, but definitely a a distinct image of her driving around in this this car, this truck.
1: And as we've kind of said, and will really be driven home as the movie goes along, This is one of those films where a bunch of stuff is happening all on one day.
0: Yes, which you had a term for that, that I always forget, but I always really like it when you say it. What do you call that kind of movie? I've settled on calling them crowded hour films. That's good. Yeah, I like that. Which, yeah,
1: the crowded hour is a quote associated with Teddy Roosevelt. He said that like the the Spanish-American War was his crowded hour. Dan is fond of these kinds of films where we kind of check in with characters and they're unfolding storylines and then maybe they all converge at the end, but they're all united by this uh, unity of
0: time. Mm-hmm. American Graffiti we talked about, um, Snow Day we talked about, how many other? I'm sure there's been other ones. Everybody Wants um, Yeah, that one's a whole weekend, but same same concept. Um, oh, true. Time loop movies, I guess. We had a whole month of those. Mm-hmm. I think that's a little different. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Because you get a different effect from the it being a concentrated time period. So as I mentioned, it's all in, in one town. But more specifically, most of the stories weave in and out of a Waffle House, except it's not called Waffle House. It's called Waffle Town. In the book, they just call it a Waffle House, I guess. Trademark issues in the adaptation or something. So it's Waffle Town the story is going to kind of climax there too. All all the stories are going to end there at the waffle town. And one kind of gag about the waffle town is that the W is not lit up. So it's awful town, which I don't think that's in the book. I just read it. And and unless it's in the third one, I don't think they make that joke, but I like that joke calling it a waffle to awful. I think that's fun. Mm -hmm. I kind of want a
1: restaurant that serves organ meat called awful house. (laughs) O-F-F-A-L.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Wait.
1: That's a term for organ meat.
0: Awful house. I like it. Yeah.
1: Awful, also called variety meats or pluck, <laughs> is the organs of a butchered animal.
0: Okay. There you go. So I think the way that, that you want to slice and dice the stories, you could group it into to different segments uh, in my notes, I broke this into five distinct stories that interlock in some ways. So I'm just going to go through those five stories. So uh, the first one is the biggest one. And this is the story of Julian Stewart. It, it, it's the biggest one in the sense that it gets the most screen time, I think. So Julie is played by Isabella Merced, who starred in the Dora the Explorer live action movie they made a couple years ago. Oh, wow. Have you seen that one? I just remember the trailer going viral. I've heard it's actually pretty good. It got surprisingly good reviews, yeah. And Stewart is played by Shamik Moore, who I think it was later this year in, in Let It Snow, or maybe it was earlier that year, played Miles Morales in Into the Spider-Verse. So, uh, I mean, obviously that's a voice acting role and not an actual acting role, but he's really good in that. And I really like his speaking voice in this movie. So it kind of connects that he had a a prominent voice acting role later. So this one is pretty closely based on a story in the book. That one is the Maureen Johnson one called The Jubilee Express is the name of that novella within Let It Snow. And the premise here. So uh, we have Stuart and he's like a big pop star. He's got a, a hit song. This was a Love Actually connection for me because there's a Ongoing thing about a a pop star, although in that case, it's like a crotchety old guy played by Bill Nighy rather than a young teeny bopper star. So I did kind of see
1: that connection. Um, Yeah, in Love Actually, you got the guy who's he's almost like Mick Jagger or something. And he's very cynical about he's going to make this Christmas single because I guess in the UK, they've got top of the charts which I guess is especially prominent and covered at Christmas time. So everybody wants to have the number one Christmas song. But we'll talk about that when we inevitably cover that as an episode. Yeah,
0: that song, right. And we do get to hear this song. Not the best song, not the worst song. It was fine. It reminded Mm -hmm. me of there's a Justin Bieber song, Christmas song that gets radio airplay this time of year. I think it sounds like that. But I do think Shamik Moore actually provides the vocals for the song, which is kind of cool. Um, I guess all of these, you know, young stars are probably like multi-talent individuals who can sing and dance and also act some and model for magazines and stuff. But yeah. So the character of Julius is is actually named Jubilee in the book, which is kind of a running joke. Why would you have the name Jubilee? There's like a elf town, like a, a mini Christmas town that's more prominent in the book. It gets a little bit of play here. Like, she's out shopping for a little figure for the elf town of her mom, the the Christmas town for her mom. And that's how she bumps into Stuart, because she's taken a train home and bumps into him there. But Jubilee is the name of something related to the elf town, and her parents are so obsessed with it, they named their daughter after that. So that's like a gag in the book.
1: (laughs) I was wondering, Dan, do you have experience taking the train places?
0: Only the Metro, which is the DC train. And the Metro is not all that great. Um, And it's not horrible. I think it's gotten better. But I always get depressed, like, at the state of public transportation when I'm driving down the highway and I'm going faster than the public transportation. It, it like, chugs along at 40 miles an hour if you're driving down 66 or something. Um, Mm -hmm. But what about you, Brian? Well,
1: I mean, if you count the Metro, I would call... That just an excuse not to park in the city. That's what I use the metro for. Then you don't have to worry about parking your car. But train wise, I think of that as being like a longer trip. And so, I, you know, I think of a train as being distinct from a subway. OK. And so when I would take the Amtrak train is going back and forth to Williamsburg at the fall break, like the Thanksgiving long weekend. So that is not an especially long trip, but you could theoretically stay on the Amtrak train and I had friends who were going to like Boston and they were going to keep riding it like all the way up the East Coast. But I have distinct memories of the very first time I took the train to make this trip just from Williamsburg up to the DC area because like in this movie, something had happened that had like blocked the tracks or made the tracks unusable. And so we were just parked out in the woods like Polar Express for like four hours, just in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) So it was a
0: weird first train experience. Yeah, wow. But I was relating to it a little bit here. That's pretty wild. I can see that putting you off trains. It's like, I don't know, I guess you have delays in traffic if you're driving or you're flight can get delayed. But I've heard riding the train is a pretty good experience. Like it's a superior customer and travel experience to riding a plane. But I have never actually ridden one, at least in my adult life. So
1: it was a lot like a plane. Actually, the seats were like a plane. They had those fold down tray tables that looked like they had come right from a plane. But you stayed on the ground, obviously.
0: Right. So, yeah, like you mentioned that train that they're both riding this is julie and Stuart, uh, gets stopped by the incoming snowstorm and stewart and julie bump into each other stewart thinks she's a fan and julie kind of resents him for this presumption and what appears to be a glitzy life that he leads but when they decide to bail out of the train they kind of do so at the same time and they start walking together through Laurel. Uh, they make a stop at the Waffle Town where some cheerleaders arrive and they they escape out the window. And it's it's kind of cute where they, they're getting to know each other here. And eventually they go and they meet Julie's mom and grandpa. So one thing we know is that Julie's mom is sick. And over the course of their conversations, Julie comes to learn that Stuart really doesn't have any family that he's close to, so he spends his Christmases lonely. And he likes this little town because he's really appreciative of the fact that everybody kind of knows each other. He's kind of seen some romance in it, and she's feeling kind of trapped by it. So they kind of have these contrasting worldviews. Because she was actually recently accepted into Columbia, the the college, but she doesn't think she's going to be able to leave home because her mom is sick. So when they're they're getting dinner with, with her family, uh, we have this scene that I really like where they turn on a Rolling Stones record. He brought up Mick Jagger, but they kind of mimic doing the, the Mick Jagger dance. He's got this real distinct duck walk type dance. And they, they play this deep cut of a Rolling Stones song called 100 Years Ago, which is a really inspired choice. I always love it when movies go for deep cuts rather than the obvious needle drops. And so I was really digging this scene. But then we kind of hit the uh, second to third act. You always got to have the conflict in these little rom-com situations. And the break comes when, you know, Stuart and Julie are connecting and Stuart's kind of learned about Julie's dilemma. And he offers to pay for a nurse to support her mom so that she can go to college. But then Julie gets really mad at him for thinking of her as a charity case, which is something that they had joked about when they were talking in the Waffle House. And then Stewart's publicist arrives and whisks him away with them in this state of conflict. But of course, things need to resolve. So uh, Julie shares with her mom that she got into Columbia and her mom convinces her to go. And she has this line that I really like that the mom does in convincing Julie to go to college. She says, it's survival to retreat. But if you retreat, you also miss the good things. Your life is to be lived, not put into a neat container to try and control. When life offers you something special, you take it. So that's kind of in the same vein of what we were talking about with the the quotes from the book earlier, Brian.
1: Right. Being able to recognize a pivotal moment and make use of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... Julie can kind of see how now maybe she can leave. She's feeling free and optimistic. And she learns from social media that there's a big brewing party at the Waffle Town, which, again, is going to be the climax of all these stories. And she decides to go to that party and who should show up. But Stuart shows up, too. And they finally kiss and they agree to meet in New York City where she will be a student at Columbia, which is, of course, right in the heart of New York City. Couple thoughts on this one. It has the deepest script and like the most that it's trying to do and the most character development. I think it's pretty good. And I think that the actors have really good chemistry, but it's actually kind of dominance to the rest of the movie. There's like a 15 minute stretch where we don't visit any of the other stories. We just hang around on this one. It had me wondering if maybe Netflix or someone had like another screenplay somewhere and they're like, you know what? This isn't quite enough to be a whole movie by itself. And someone passed it along to the the Let It Snow team and like, hey, you, just copy and paste chunks of this story. And that can be one of your, your romances, because it kind of felt a little more developed than the other ones. Hmm. I, yeah, I think it definitely gets the most screen time. So that was story number one. So now we get to story number two, which is the story of Tobin and the Duke as, as she goes by. And they are played by Mitchell Hope, who is from the Descendants trilogy, which I know we're going to watch at some point on the pod. It's one of the only (laughs) Disney Channel musicals we haven't talked about.
1: Right. It spawned a franchise, so we got to check in with it at some point.
0: And then Kiernan Shipka, I think that's how you pronounce it. She was in Mad Men. She had a prominent role in the later seasons, and she's the star of the Netflix show Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the... Riverdale spinoff that I think it was a Netflix exclusive. I could be wrong on that. Did you ever watch Riverdale or the Sabrina spinoff, Brian?
1: No, I haven't. Gotcha. So Sabrina is the new Sabrina show is tied in with the Riverdale show. I mean, I do know that Sabrina originally came from Archie Comics, so that might make some sense.
0: Yeah, it's actually called Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and... Looking it up real quick, it does look like it was for Netflix and it kind of had a more horror theme to it. Yeah. But it was tied directly to Riverdale. Gotcha. So this one is kind of the adaptation of the second of the stories, which is a cheer-tastic Christmas miracle. The one that, of course, I am quite attached to. And so I was very interested to see how well the movie would do with the story. And I got a couple of thoughts, but let's kind of get into the story here. So this centers around Tobin, who it's a boy's name in case you didn't know, and Angie, who goes by the Duke. And the reason she goes by the Duke is due to her tomboyish look and attitude. Although Tobin has fallen in love with her, he's afraid to admit it. So we get all these scenes of where he's trying to blurt it out, but can't quite blurt it out. So... I was a little disappointed that they reversed the angle on the love story here, where the instead of having the girl being pining after the boy and the boy just being a dumbass and not realizing it or thinking about her in that way and, and trying to kind of overcome that mental block, it's a little more cliche to me that it's the boy pining after the girl and he just got to speak up about it. Right. I think this way is how we see it more often. Yeah. I still think it works pretty well. And the one thing I'll say about it is like the casting is perfect. Both of these actors look exactly how I imagined them in the book. And their chemistry is pretty similar to how I imagined it in the book. And they have good chemistry. So despite my disappointment about the setup, um, I really like the casting. And whenever we check in on, on this, this story. So we learned that, that they've been friends since they were five years old. And they have a tradition of Christmas Eve movie marathons. But this year, the Duke suggests that they go to a college party with this boy named J.P. LaPierre, which I think is a great name, who is this athletic guy a couple years older than them. And Tobin suspects that J.P. is into the Duke. So he's obviously nervous because he is trying to express himself and his feelings this Christmas Eve. But they decide to go to this party and they drive Tobin's He's got this old like land yacht style car, like an Oldsmobile. I think it's technically a Ford, but I love looking at these gnarly, huge old cars and they've named the car Carla, which comes straight from the book. There's a lot of good gags about Carla, the car in the book, and they go and meet JP where they play broomball, which is a hockey type game. Have you ever played broomball, Brian?
1: I haven't played it, but I knew what it was before it showed up on the screen. It's basically like less purpose driven hockey. Like, you know, you think of a hockey stick and a hockey puck being very much designed for those purposes. But this is like how you play hockey when you don't have that special equipment. It's like literally you got like a push broom and like a kickball. But other than that, the rules seem the same as hockey
0: right I think it's similar the the big distinction on broomball as opposed to hockey is that you wear shoes when you play broom ball not skates and so I think people who play broomball seriously have like special like uh, spiked boots because obviously you don't want to be slipping when you I also think this game is kind of popular in Canada and like the Dakotas and stuff where it's gets super duper cold so cold that the ice, isn't quite as slippery, I think. So you can just wear your heavy duty boots and be running around on the ice. But during this game, we meet the Reston brothers who make these D-bag bully characters. They're played by twins and they beat up on Tobin pretty bad during the game. We get a lot of shots of him getting decked and knocked over. That looked really painful. (laughs) I agree. Like he's
1: functioning better than I would expect.
0: Yeah, it's like they make this big thing out of him getting knocked down. And then like the next scene, he's like, oh, no, I'm fine. And his bruises don't seem to be an issue the rest of the movie. I feel like they should have given him some bruise makeup for the rest of the movie or something like that. I don't know. But I really like the Reston brothers, both in the book and here. They're just like good villains. And they they get a good payoff in, in this movie that they don't get in the book that, that I liked. So kind of mad that he's been beat up. And also to support his friend, Kyun, I think is how you pronounce it, who we'll get to in a bit, who's trying to get the party going at the the Waffle Town. He decides that he's going to steal the keg that the Reston brothers brought to Broomball for some reason. There's just a keg hanging out there. So they grab the keg and they run off with it. And now we kind of have this car chase because they're in Carla trying to escape the Reston brothers who hop into some sort of sports car chasing after him. And it's just a fun scene and it's fun in the book, too. I feel like the, this, you know, I'm obviously talking more about the adaptational aspect here because I, I care more about the story. But I feel like it captures the great adventure energy pretty well for some of these scenes that, that's in the book. So even though they, they manage to escape the Reston brothers in the car chase, Carlos' tire pops shortly afterwards and they crash into a snowbank and they're kind of stuck at this church where they have to call, of course, the tinfoil lady, the woman with the tow truck. And so they go into this church. They're just hanging out in this church. And and we get this really lovely scene of Tobin finding the pipe organ and playing a song called The Hole of the Moon, which is this 80s pop song. I actually think it's much nicer here. If you ever go and listen to it, it's kind of a synthy song. But here with scored just to the organ and just to... Uh, Tobin and the Duke singing it, it. It's it's a really lovely little uh, scene, I think. I think another also great music selection. They're two for two on the, on the songs they picked for emotional texture, I would say. Mm.
1: Yeah, I suppose this was probably my favorite music selection of the movie.
0: But as this outing goes along, Tobin starts to grow upset because it really seems like the Duke has connected with JP and he's... He's worried that he's missed a shot or or he still doesn't quite know how to express himself. And they get into like a little feud and the Duke heads off to a party with JP leaving Tobin stuck with the car in the snowbank waiting for the tow truck. There's a little gag here where someone asks him at the church, are you a wise man? And he says, yes. And they hand it like just with no context. He says, yes they hand him what looks like a Jedi robe and he puts it on. And we learn that there's like this big secular Christmas play, which is another gag from Love Actually, the the Christmas play that is not biblically accurate. But we get a little snippet of that, that play as well at the church. At last, though, Tobin gets towed. He goes to the big party at the Waffle Town. And the, another scene I find pretty funny is that the Reston brothers confront him. They've caught up with him in the keg and... He's just had enough from the day. He goes psycho for a minute, like threatening them. And it seems like it's the moment where he's just going to get clocked in the face by one of them, but they laugh it off and they kind of have some affection for him for being a a, a crazy dude. And they all share a drink together, which I think is a pretty good payoff.
1: I kind of wanted to know what the Reston brothers did because multiple characters are like, I thought they were in prison as like a (laughs) joke, but... I mean, most of the movie, they're tearing around, chasing people with their car. (laughs) Like there are several near misses. So I wanted to know like what these guys allegedly have done before I embrace them too fully.
0: That's a good point. Yeah. It's like you could start to think of some crimes where if that's what they've been accused of, you're like, "Eh, maybe I don't want to be happy that the Reston brothers are befriending my protagonists here. Exactly. Let's let them be the villains. The Duke eventually arrives at the party too and finds him there and they reconnect and they, they both confess their love, the best friends now lovers and they kiss. And I really like this monologue that, that uh, Tobin gives. There, there's a few good quotes in this. So what he says is, Angie, I'm in love with you. And it's not like, you know, in the traditional sense, it's more like I think of you every minute of the day. You know, I just want you to think I'm cool all the time. When something funny happens, you're the only person I want to tell. When something sad happens, I just want to know if you think it's sad. And when I saw you with JP, I wanted to kill him. Like I actually wanted to murder him. I want to be with you for the rest of my life, Angie. Which that is not pulled from the book at all. And I think it's a it's a nice little monologue to overcome the best friends to, to lovers barrier. But I, I love the way the Duke responds. She says wow, that was actually pretty traditional. Um, it's a good punchline.
1: I think he's laying it on awful thick. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it's not too much different from in Bucket of Blood when he basically says, let's get married. And that's <laughs> like the first thing.
0: Maybe saying I want to spend the rest of my life with you is a little strong. That's that's definitely true.
1: Yeah. I think overall, all these storylines work out unrealistically well for these characters. <laughs>
0: Gotta have all your happy endings, though. Yeah, there's not really a sad ending. I guess there's one character who doesn't... Well, no, that's not even true. I was going to say who doesn't end up with someone, but we'll get to that in a second.
1: But I guess the key is that she turns out to be into it after he makes this big speech.
0: Yeah, that is true. So one thing that this is missing compared to the book is what is her perspective on this? Like, she kind of says at the end... I was starting to realize that I felt the same way about you, and that was weird for me, and I also made it weird. But I think more of her perspective would have given this story a little more depth and a little more payoff at the end, I think. Because you're right. She's like, yeah, I guess I am too. And We don't have any reason to know why that might be. So story number three is between Dory and Carrie... So Dory is played by Liv Hewson, and she is from nothing that I've seen. It looks like her biggest credit is she was a recurring character on Inhumans, which was, I think, one of the Netflix Marvel shows. And then the the other leg of this romance is Anna Akana, or maybe it's Anna Akana. I'm not sure. She is a YouTuber. And this story, I think, was invented more or less whole cloth. There's a couple of references from the book brought in, but. This storyline does not exist in the book. And this is the one where we have a same-sex romance. I feel like Netflix felt like they had to get one of them in there, if you're going to be cynical about it, because none of the ones in the book, all of those were heterosexual romances. Right. Yeah, Netflix has got their boxes they got to check. So not too long ago, we were told, Dory, who is a worker at the Waffle Town... Um, She had this magical romantic night with Carrie where they like deeply connected and felt like it was something special. But while she is working at Waffle Town this Christmas Eve, uh, her posse of cheerleader friends appear. And despite Dory like attempting all sorts of cute gestures to kind of recreate the magic of that one night, Carrie is completely cold to her. Until one point, Dory approaches Carrie as she's heading to the bathroom and Carrie just starts kissing her, like acting like everything is good. But then again, later, she's cold again towards her. So like what's going on? Dory finally takes a stand to Carrie that you need to decide how you feel about me and you need to act that way. And Carrie admits that part that the problem is that she hasn't come out to her friend's. But Dory has finally inspired her to do so because she thinks Dory is really cool, how confident and open she is. And they eventually get together. Her cheerleader friends who she was skeptical of letting down are are cheer for her when, she, when they kiss. And that's how this, this story number three ends. So for me, this was easily the weakest of them. And I think that's just by the nature of the fact that it didn't have a, the rich source material as a basis The actors don't really have too much chemistry, and I didn't really feel like, I don't know, I feel like if we'd actually seen some of their original connection, it would have worked a little bit better to feel the draw between them, but I never actually felt the draw between them, and it just felt like a little repetitive.
1: Right, it had happened off screen, and then the resolution is, again, way too unrealistically positive for me to buy it, because (laughs) not only... Okay, yes, the connection was genuine and this is the life that the girl wants to choose. But also all the friends she was worried about not accepting it, just instantly accept it.
0: Right. They cheer her on. I mean, I think there's something to that in like the theme of be who you are. And like you're probably more afraid about what people will think of you than they ever actually do judge you. But you're right. It's just like happy, happy. Everybody's good, you know? No, no shading there, I guess. So story number four out of five stars Addie, who is played by Odeya Rush, I think is how you say it. Um, I saw her this year in the movie Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which I liked. And she was also in Lady Bird. Have you ever seen this actress before?
1: I didn't recognize her. I take that back. I did recognize her, but I didn't know from what. I just looked at her filmography, and she's in the Goosebumps movie from
0: 2015. Oh, okay. What did you think of the Goosebumps movie?
1: It's pretty good. I would recommend it. It's like as good as a movie based on 62 children's books can be.
0: <laughs> I really like her. I, th- I think she's got this weird energy that is like, I don't know, just something kind of aloof and ditzy, but also, like, genuine. And she manages to have good chemistry with pretty much everyone she's on screen with and everything I've seen her in. So I liked her, and I thought she did pretty well in this movie. So in this story, Addie is best friends with Dory, who was the worker at the Waffle Town from the previous story. But she's kind of facing her own romantic crisis. She has this boyfriend, Jeb, who's played by Mason Gooden who's been in a few things recently. Uh, He was in this movie I saw called Fall, which is this thriller about these climbers who get stuck on a tower up in the sky. But also she was in Scream 5. She was in 5 Cream. He He was one of the teens. So I thought it was fun to see him again. He's not one of the killers in that one. There's like a set of twins, I think, and he's one of them. But she is finding that her boyfriend is consistently evading her and she sees from his social media that he's at the waffle town where just with some friends, like everything keeps converging here at the waffle town, which I kind of like. I like that there's this place where you get different social groups and types of characters into the same space. I always think that that works well in a story, but she hitches a ride with tinfoil lady. So I guess this is the, where we get the most Joan Cusack action is in this, Thread of the story because they have this back and forth about the merits of technology, her phone specifically as a tool for human connection. And it kind of culminates with tinfoil lady taking her phone and throwing it out the window, which, okay. Like it's one thing to tell someone they're wrong, but phones cost like a thousand dollars. Like you can't just throw someone's phone out the window. I don't know. I got mad as someone who recently bought an expensive phone at the prospect of of someone doing that. It gets, like, run over by a car, too. Yeah, it was extreme. But she gets to the Waffle Town, and there she confronts Jeb, who is indeed sitting with another girl. And Jeb's kind of put off by this, and he's like, you're being annoying and real clingy. And Addie kind of loses it, and she pours a shake over the head of the girl that Jeb is sitting with. But Dory, who is, of course, there, too, and is facing her own romantic conflict isn't really giving any sympathy to Addie who has come across as kind of crazy and, and clingy here. And it's like, you need to be less selfish and needy and boy obsessed. And this makes Addie very mad for a minute here. I thought where this was going to be going was Addie and Dory actually connecting. It's like they're, they're best friends at first and they have these moments where they're like, you're really cool. And You need to be with someone who appreciates you and they have good chemistry together. So I was like, hmm, where is this going to be going? But it doesn't go the route of of Addie and Dory getting together. Right. I thought Dory was interested
1: in Addie at this point because, I mean, she's got the problems with the, the one girl who won't acknowledge that they're together. Right. And so, yeah, I thought this was the resolution we were moving towards, although... Dory's like, you need to, you know, see the people who see the value in you. You need to fall back on the people who are into you already and you don't need to change yourself.
0: It's kind of laying the groundwork for them to to get together. Right. Yeah, it certainly seemed that way to me. So Addie has another conversation with Tinfoil Lady. I don't remember quite how they get back together. I wouldn't get back in the car with the Tinfoil Lady after she threw my phone out the window, but they do. And eventually, Addie sees the error of her ways, um, or at least that she maybe should be a little bit more appreciative. And she goes and buys Dory a pet pig, which kind of comes out of nowhere. It's referenced in one scene early in the movie that she likes pigs. But this is a much more major point in the book, because this one is actually based off of, I forgot to say, based off of the third book, the Lauren Miracle one, which is entitled The Patron Saint of Pigs, that that is like a really important thing to Addie's friend. And that's kind of how she realizes it and and the payoff on it. I would be we've talked about this. Pets are not a good surprise. A pet is a commitment. You don't just say, oh, guess what? I got you a present. It's a pet for you to take care of, especially something difficult like a pig. It's not like a cat where you just put out milk once a day and clean a litter box. You know, a pig is a big responsibility. Unless you set it down to the farm or something.
1: (laughs) I just want to know who has one for sale. Like, at least around here, you don't see that very often.
0: No. I wonder if pig's something you can just get as a pet. I don't know. Like, I know there's some pets you can only get if you have a license or something like that. Right. I'm sure it depends on where you live. As part of their best friends making up, Addy gives this pump-up speech to Dory, who is kind of in the midst of dark period with Carrie, who's, uh, you know, not really acknowledging her feelings. And she gives this pump up speech, which I think is in the pantheon of best friend pump up speeches. Like, I'm just going to read it to you because I think it's great. She says, you are 1000% flawless. Like there is literally nothing wrong with you. You are an incredible friend. You make me laugh when I'm freaked out. Even when I'm being a complete dick, you're still there for me. You are the coolest, most badass human on this planet, okay? If you and Beyonce were trapped in a house that was on fire and I could only save one of you, I would let Beyonce die. And if somebody doesn't see that, that's not your problem because you deserve to be with someone who wants to shout from the rooftops how great you are. That I would feel motivated if anyone ever said that to me, I gotta say. Mm-hmm. I'm going
1: to be t- really cynical for a minute, which is just to say that... It's like softened somewhat for me, harder to buy if it opens with you're 1000% flawless. Like, I mean, you're not, though. Nobody (laughs) is. I mean, you could say all those other things and have that be true. You're an incredible friend. You make me laugh when I'm freaked out and so on and so forth and have that all be true and have that be validating. But to say like you are perfect, that's too much for me.
0: Oh, man, you just made me think of that. Maybe the parallel for this one in I love actually to to
1: me, you are perfect. Exactly.
0: (laughs) man what?
1: i don't like that movie
0: <laughs> like what does he think his end game is going
1: to be there oh
0: that uh, it's so stupid it's just incredibly stupid
1: and he makes that whole wedding video yeah oh super creepy did, i really don't like that movie <laughs> oh my god like did they pay him to make that video
0: did he just think they would never watch it no he just brought a video camera to his it's supposed to be his best friend's wedding He brought a video camera and he's like filming close-ups of The Bride the whole time. It's it's really messed up. Yeah. I guess I get more amusement out of that movie than it sounds like you do, in some part because of the badness and the outright cheesiness (laughs) and ridiculousness of it all.
1: Yeah. The part that I liked is when Liam Neeson is a single father and he and his son bond by watching Titanic. (laughs) <laughs> like if they're ever feeling bad, they just put Titanic on. It's like, okay, I, I can relate to that.
0: But that's weird. Like, why would you watch <laughs> a three and a half hour movie about a dude who has a one night stand with someone? As your I don't know. I guess everybody has their comfort movies. Because it's a great movie, Dan. Oh, I know. We both had it in our top 100. I'm just not sure it's something I would be showing my 10 year old. To I see. That's funny because I think, you know, obviously the... What's his name? Rick Grimes, the name of that actor? I forget. Yeah, Andrew Lincoln. Yeah, hold on. Now I'm getting confused. Andrew Lincoln, is he the actor? And Rick Grimes. Andrew Lincoln is
1: the actor. He plays Rick Grimes on Walking Dead. Frank Grimes is Homer's rival.
0: Okay. <laughs> Grimy, as he liked to be called. <laughs> Change the channel, Marge. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the Liam Neeson one gives me the willies, too. Just the way that he's like really involved in his kid's love life. And some of the advice he gives him is not good. I don't like that one very much. <laughs> <laughs> this is turning out to be a Stealth Love Actually episode, I guess. The stinger of this one is Addy bumps into JP, who had been the third wheel character in Tobin and the Duke's story. So even JP gets a happy ending here. All right, last story. This is story five. So this is between, I'll just say the name as he calls himself, DJ K-Star Power Money. And also in there is Billy. Who uh, I'll go through their roles here in a second, but DJ K Star Power Money, also known as Keon, is played by Jacob Batalon, I think is how you say it. I'm not 100% sure, but he had some pretty big castings because he plays someone in the MCU Spider Man movies. I think he's Peter Parker's friend. I don't actually know. I haven't seen any of the MCU Spider Man movies, but did you recognize this guy?
1: Yeah. And I mean, that was my touchstone to us. This is the guy who's in the recent Spider-Man films. I think his name is Ned or something. And he is like a classmate of Peter Parker.
0: Gotcha. And then uh, another character who I just want to talk about here, too, is Billy. And he's played by Miles Robbins, who is the son of Tim Robbins from Shawshank. He hasn't really been in too much stuff, but. I thought this guy was really funny. Billy plays the manager at the Waffle Town. And he gets a lot of really funny lines and moments. He gets a gag where he talks about how he's banned at the liquor store. And it gets just enough detail to be very funny. It made me want to know more. Like, I want to just... I want a cut of this movie that just follows Billy around for the day.
1: I thought I recognized this actor from something, but I'm not sure. I guess he's Tim Robbins' son. Yeah. Wikipedia said he studied documentary film at brown for three years but then dropped out which is the kind of thing you can do when you're tim robbins's son
0: <laughs> oh he was in the Dahmer movie that the star of teen beach was in
1: right and he was also in halloween 2018 so for both of those i was like oh he was i probably saw him in that but he was like very minor parts in both so
0: did you see the 2018 halloween i did see that one yes okay That's interesting. I I don't know if I would have placed him from that. Obviously, I binged or maybe not obviously, but I binged the Halloweens this past October. So fresh in my mind. But um, anyways, this bit of the movie opens with Keon. And again, I'll say it one more time because it's funny every time it comes up, which is not often enough in the movie. DJ K star power money. Tobin notes it looks like a text a baby would send because he does it with like symbols. Uh, he wants to host a party with his parents out of town. Classic teen story. A beat ripped from Dazed and Confused. The parents come back or, or basically decide not to travel. And so the, the party is off and they need to find a different place for the party. He works at Waffle Town, so we see him there. And he was bummed about his party being canceled because he was hoping to get his big DJ break because somebody named DJ Tempest said he was going to come to the party. Another good quip from Tobin here, because Keanu's best friends with Tobin. His name is Rob. It's a normal name. And just because he DJs a pool party doesn't mean he gets to rename himself Tempest. There's actually a lot of funny lines in this movie. I-, I laughed a bunch of times.
1: Yeah, there's some very stylistic dialogue. The spirit of it kind of reminded me of like the Royale with cheese in Pulp Fiction. Like it's the kind of dialogue that it kind of has the ring of regular conversation, but like if you talked with your friend for a hundred years and then boiled it down to just the bits that were funny or interesting.
0: Oh, I like that. That's also how John Green writes. Whenever he writes, I feel like exactly what you said. If you like distilled the funniest things that a normal teen had ever said in their life, that's what you get in a John Green novel. It's like all of those bits. And so he, he decides his mission is he's going to throw a party at the Waffle Town and, Billy, uh, who the manager there, and he kind of interlopes in on a bunch of the stories, Billy does, encourages him to do so. And it seems like it's not going well at first, but it, it builds and it builds, and Tobin brings the keg. And finally, at the climax, we have everybody come to the party. And that's where all the, the, every, all the lovers reunite, at this party at the Waffle Town. So it's kind of like a, a nice place where everything converges. I'm trying to think of other movies where everything converges in a single location. I guess American graffiti has that because they have the the race at dawn or whatever. Right. And so
1: this movie made me think of a couple ones. Uh, I definitely saw some parallels with snow day. I kind of mentioned that earlier, but with the sense of snow days, having a sense of like magic possibility of course, it's got the best friend romance. You got the person driving around in the not quite gonculator. <laughs> but the one that I saw the most parallels with is a movie that I'm not sure we've talked about very much. I'm sure I've mentioned it at least once, but The Night Before from, I think, 2015. Oh, I
0: like that movie. That's a fun movie. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I saw a lot of parallels because that's one that also takes place all on a Christmas Eve. And it's got characters that we follow throughout the night. And it builds towards this big epic party. And it also has, like, a creepy loner character on the fringes. And, well, you mentioned already that Tinfoil Lady narrates this movie. And, like, when everything is happy and wrapped up at the end she gives this big dramatic narrator send-off. So she seems to be more important and tuned in than we realize. Like, she seems to have some gonzo Charles Dickens omniscience going on.
0: Okay. Maybe some Tom Bombadil, too?
1: Yes. Actually, I like that theory that Tom Bombadil is the tinfoil lady. Okay. But this happens in The Night Before as well the characters have this weed dealer that they keep running into because it's like they keep getting weed from him, but then something happens that they lose the weed and they have to call him back. And so he keeps popping up. But then at the end, spoilers, it turns out that this legendary party that like everyone in New York wants to be at, he is the impresario. He's the one putting it all together. He references Gatsby. Like, that was his inspiration, was like, be the shadowy figure throwing this massive party. And you would never expect it because he's like this shabby drug dealer guy. And then at the end, he also <laughs> grows wings and flies away. So I guess he's a guardian angel, too. <laughs> but that's what I was thinking of when suddenly here is Joan Cusack back to wrap up the movie.
0: That's a fun movie. Seth Rogen, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Anthony Mackey, Lizzie Kaplan, Mindy Kaling, All at peak power is all very funny. You know, I stan Lizzie Kaplan.
1: Right, I ended up liking that one quite a bit. I saw it a couple times in theaters because I had a pass that year. I saw it with Nate,
0: uh, who's appeared on the pod and who is a good friend of mine. And uh, we snuck in airplane bottles and drank while we watched it. But yeah, so as you mentioned, it it winds down with tinfoil lady giving her parting remarks and I kind of liked the way that she tied it together. She talked about how Christmas Eve could also be the eve of the rest of your life. And just as she says that, the W on the Waffle House lights up. I don't know why. This little image just uh tugged my heart a little bit. I don't it like it, it tied it together well, I thought. That's how Snow Day ends. Not Snow Day. We were talking about Snow Day. That's how Let It Snow ends. Alright, Brian, let's talk a little bit about this movie. So some good things, some not so good things, some observations.
1: So broadly I did enjoy the dialogue. It's quirky Mm -hmm. had some funny moments overall i think things turned out a little too positive
0: for everybody involved
1: that's just me
0: yeah it's it's an upbeat vibes movie for sure especially the ending it's like a very happy ending it doesn't have the one from love actually where snape is cheating on emma thompson and we get a good cry about that
1: at the same time though i guess something about love actually is that it's a little too all over the place in tone. It's like some things are really super dark. And it's like, are we going to even acknowledge that? Or I guess we're just moving on because there's 10 stories happening.
0: <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, the dude who proclaimed his love with the cards is still hanging out with the the couple that just got married. I don't know why. That, that would be re- Do you think like that ever came out? Like, did they just pretend it never happened? I don't know. I always thought it was weird.
1: Yeah, it was very weird because it's like either he's going to just say his piece and then leave her life, which is still not a great move. But like, I guess it makes sense. It's just like retreat gracefully. But he's like hanging out outside her house like nothing. He does the whole movie is normal or acceptable.
0: (laughs) He's like very creepy. And the movie doesn't seem to acknowledge that, which is makes it even creepier in some ways. The, th- the dumb thing about that, too, is they all unite at the the airport. Why are they all at the airport? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, some of them, it, it I think it shows like who's flying, but like the airport has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's not like Waffletown, where Waffletown had been the setting for much of the movie and the whole time it was kind of building towards that. So it made sense as the climate.
1: Right. It makes sense that a lot of them come to the school in Love, actually, because there's like a talent show. Right, right. But then, yeah, then it's like everybody after that goes to the airport and where are they all going? (laughs) Doesn't make a lot of sense. You're right. Something, though, about this movie, Let It Snow, is it was an extremely Dan movie. The Danniest Dan movie. (laughs) I was picking up on bullet points, Dan-style points from early on and it just kept going i was calling to mind the breaking bad clip where jesse says he can't keep getting away with this (laughs) because of course the thing that i always do is reference breaking bad
0: there you go ties it back together i definitely was like hmm could it possibly be more of a dan movie like in terms of the stereotypical dan things but what were some of the things that when you were watching it made you say hey this is a, a dan movie As opposed to a Brian movie.
1: Okay, well, you got the best friend romance going on. And the thing where it's a teen movie that's all happening over the course of one day. Oh, and it was adapted from a young adult book. So all of these things were in my mind. And I think the most concise explanation of the difference between a Dan movie and a Brian movie, as I was listening back to our top 100 movies discussion, just kind of had it on in the background while I was taking a shower or something. And you described one of your movies, and I'm not even sure which one it was, as a magical night walking around campus. I was like, had my ears prick up for a moment. I was like, huh? I di- Wait, I didn't remember talking about this. And then I thought back as like, wait a minute. He means it's you're on campus and it's nighttime and things happen all in a short span of time. But it is not a knight K N I G H T <laughs> who is magical who has suddenly arrived inexplicably on campus because that would definitely be a Brian movie.
0: That's pretty funny. No knight in shining armor. That, that must have been shithouse from 2020. But that's pretty funny. I like that as like the, a good encapsulation of the the two visions.
1: Is it a magical night or a magical night (laughs) with a K?
0: Yeah, that's true. It was occurring to me that this was very much a Dan movie. What more could it be to be a Dan movie? And I couldn't really come up with anything. Maybe if there was a time loop in there.
1: So I was wondering, did you watch this pretty soon after it came out?
0: Yes, I kept up with its development. Um, When they released the poster, which came out before a trailer, I guessed who each of the characters was from the book. And I pretty much got them exactly right. There's a a moment in this where two characters fall down in the snow, which is an image I always like. We've seen it a couple times. We talked about it in uh, Snow Day. We talked about it in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, like the shot from above of the two people lying down in the snow. And the poster is that kind of extended to the entire cast. And so uh, maybe I'll drop it in the Discord or if you just Google it, you'll find it. But I was like, oh, I bet that's Tobin and that's the Duke. I bet that's Jubilee and that's Stewart. I bet that's the best friend. OK, and I and I pretty much nailed it. I, I was pretty close, but I, I did watch it. This was my second time watching it. I watched it with my wife shortly after it debuted on Netflix. And I would say I think I liked it a little more this time through. My big... Issue with it is I think the uh stories are really uneven. Like I think the first one I mentioned just gets way more screen time than the rest. And so the characters get a lot more development. I'm not saying I want the movie to be longer. I like how brisk it is, but if we could have somehow had a little bit more development on the Tobin story, for example, I think that would have done more. Or the one with Dory and Carrie, if we could have seen some of their a little bit more of their off screen connection, I think that might have helped but I don't really know how you add some of that without making the movie too much longer, because I, one of the things I like is that it just, it's credits are running by minute 85. So yeah. Um, before we throw a rating on this, a couple of differences in the book that uh, I haven't mentioned. So one is the Stuart and Julie story. Like I mentioned, it's Jubilee instead of Julie. Stuart isn't a pop star. He's actually the local and Julie is from out of town and, There's a pretty good gag in there that the reason she has to go out of town is to stay with her grandmother because her parents got in a big brawl over the distribution of this year's Elf Town Village pieces. Uh, And just the image of like a bunch of middle aged people getting into a fight about a little Christmas Town piece is pretty funny. There's also a character named J.P., in the book, but he's kind of just a pal. He's like, it's got a, it's a Harry, Ron, Hermione dynamic where it's two male friends and one female friend. So he's not like the third prong of a love triangle in that one. He's kind of similar to Keon in that regard, although Kion is a, a character in the book as well. And Jeb, who is the boyfriend of Addie, who kind of gets ditched. He has a totally different arc. There is a thing where Addie thinks she's being ignored, but... It turns out that Jeb is like desperately trying to find her, but his phone is broken and we actually like get snippets of him and all the other stories. So it's a totally different uh, little arc for him there. And the big one is that doesn't end at Waffle Town. They all have they're all standalone stories that end in their own way. So one of the contributions I liked is that it, it all comes together. Any other thoughts on the movies? Good things, not so good things before we jump into is it good, Brian?
1: No, I think I'll kind of throw it into discussion as I'm giving my value all
0: right sounds good so is it good as our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good which is an eight out of eight so brian is let it snow the adaptation of the 2008 novel released on netflix in 2019 good
1: so i was on the fence a little bit with this one it's not a bad movie I feel like we've hit a lot of these beats in our coverage before, which is not necessarily a, a good or bad thing. I'm like right on the fence between a three and a four out of eight. And so I was looking at other movies that, I, that we've given ratings to. I like this more than everybody wants some. I like it maybe on par with Last Day of Summer, which was the middle school time loop movie. It may reach just into a four for me, a good-ish. And I think it is awfully generous to its characters in the terms of the endings that we arrive at, but that's in the spirit of its moral, which is don't just sit around in your happy medium. As you said, it's make the leap, take the chance. And you. What's what's the other saying? Fortune favors the bold. That is maybe a more concise expression of the moral here. So it kind of makes sense that things turn out well. but So yeah, I guess a, a, a four for me, four out of eight. What do you think, Dan?
0: I have a lot of ambivalence and mixed thoughts on this one. As an adaptation, it didn't quite nail my favorite story. It got the dynamic a little off and made it a little more cliche. But I really liked spending time with those characters. And I thought the casting and acting and writing were all pretty good for that. And then the other stories are hit or miss. I, I do feel like it's, as I mentioned, the pacing and distribution-wise, it's a little lumpy. And it also just it makes me feel pretty happy, in spite of its cheesiness and it, you know, the fact that it's it's just a bunch of teen rom coms. You know, it's not pushing any boundaries with its storytelling or its form. It's just a cheerful holiday romantic comedy that's heightened a little bit because it's spread out across a bunch of different characters. Um, in this little town. I mean, it's better than like a generic Hallmark movie. It has more personality and color and sharper writing than that. But it's not special. So my head is saying a four, good-ish. But, you know, I was just smiling the whole time I was watching. I was having a great time. I was laughing a lot. I I laughed like five or ten times, which I don't laugh out loud watching movies all that much. So that was, it was pretty good. I'm going to give it a, a very soft, good a five out of eight. So you were on the low end of a four. I was on the low end of a five, not all that far off, but um, there you go. That's let it snow from 2019. So Brian, thank you for indulging me. I, I always like to kind of use this as a, a canvas to break apart movies that I, I can't quite decide how I feel about them. And, I was glad I did it this time because I ended up feeling a little bit more positive about the movie than I had when I watched it for the first time around when it came out. So that's what we have for this week. But Brian, what are we going to be doing next week?
1: Okay, so in some regards, I was glad that this was some well-trod Dan movie territory because uh, another movie that I was seeing commonalities with was Anna and the Apocalypse, which we covered in the most recent previous Dan hosted episode. Where, you know, even in that one, you got the friend romance and the time scale is condensed and, you know, a lot going on in a central location that the people are kind of journeying to. All of that to say that my next pick is kind of going to be a continuation of my last one when we were talking Elmo Saves Christmas, because up next, we're going to do a New Year's Eve episode. It'll hopefully drop just before New Year's Eve, so if you want to, we'll give you a time code when you got to start the episode, and, you know, you can ring in the New Year with us officially. But I've got a a couple things I want us to cover. One is Sesame Street Stays Up Late, the 1993 New Year's special from Sesame Street, and so that we're not just becoming an all-Sesame Street podcast podcast. I also want to bring into discussion a short film called Dinner for One from 1963. That is a bit of a deep cut, and we will explain the significance of it when we reconvene. Did you have anything you wanted to talk about New Year's specific, Dan?
0: I don't have it laid out yet, so I will uh, think a little bit about it. Maybe I'll announce it on the Discord, but um, I'll come up with something and let you know, Brian.
1: I think it'll be good. We will talk about resolutions, plans for the year ahead, things we liked, good things and not so good things about 2022. It's going to be introspective. And hey, we'll have some more Muppets.
0: Sounds good to me, Brian. Thank
1: you. You too, Dan. This was fun as always. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. See you all next week around the new year.
0: Bye.